your brilliance and your strengths are not your greatest source of credibility. It's your humanity that makes people want to connect to you and follow you. You're listening to the Vibrant Leadership Podcast with leadership speaker and consultant, Nicole Greer. Welcome to the Vibrant Leadership Podcast. My name is Nicole Greer, the Vibrant Coach, and I am here with none other than Ron Carucci. Ron is the co-founder and managing partner at Navalent. He works with CEOs and executives pursuing transformational change for their organizations, leaders, and industries. He has a 30-year track record helping executives tackle challenges of strategy, organization and leadership. And he's worked with everything from startups to Fortune 10s. Uh, he works with nonprofits to heads of state. Ooh, I want to hear about that. Uh, turnarounds to new markets and strategies and overhauling leadership and culture to redesigning for growth. He has helped organizations articulate strategies that lead to accelerated growth and design that can execute those strategies. He's worked in more than 25 countries on four continents. That Okay, so we might have to have a little travel log section. Uh, I would like to know about that. And he is the author of nine books, including an Amazon number one, Rising to Power, and just recently published, he's gotten through it one more time, uh, his new book, To Be Honest, Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice, and Purpose. He is a popular contributor to the Harvard Business Review, where Navalent's work on leadership was named one of 2016's management ideas that mattered most. He is also a regular contributor to Forbes and two-time TEDx speaker. Oh my goodness, Ron, do you sleep? And his works have been featured in Fortune, CEO Magazine, Business Insider, MSNBC, Business Week, Inc., Fast Company, Smart Business, and for several places where thought leaders hang out. All right, so y'all, are you impressed or what? I am so excited, Ron, that you're here. I don't think we can get it all done in the time frame we have. You might have to come back for a second session. <laughs> so welcome. Well, nice to be here, Nicole. Thanks for having me. It's great to meet you. Yeah, you too. You too. So I, I am just curious. First question always out of the gate is what is Ron's definition of leadership? How do you go about defining it? Gosh, uh, you know, I think for, for me, when I look at leadership, it's about influencing a greater good uh, in someone's life or influencing a greater good in an organization. It's, it's, sh- it's shaping an environment where people can become their best selves. Mm, I love that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of my things is, is as, as a coach uh, and you too, as a coach is like people have so much potential. We could do so much together if we could just get ourselves wrapped around that idea, just in general, that there's so much untapped potential. So that's awesome. All right. Well, I am excited about your new book and we were talking about it before we got started. I see it in the background there right behind you. Um, so tell us a little bit about your new book. I think this is a fantastic concept, this idea, which shouldn't be uh, revolutionary to people, but to be honest, leading with power, truth, justice, and purpose. Tell us a little bit about this. So, uh, you know, Nicole, I think we're all tired of some of the stories we're hearing. We're tired of hearing about Theranos and, you know, Wells Fargo and the stories that just makes our, make our souls sag. And I wanted to know why it keeps happening. Why, why do we keep running into the worst versions of ourselves and having people you know, take our companies down along with the stock uh, in these really bizarre, odd, self-serving choices. And I wanted to know, could we predict it? Could, could we could we figure out under what conditions people would tell the truth, behave fairly and uh, dignified and serve a greater good? 
And under what conditions would they lie, cheat, and serve their own interests first? So we did a 15-year longitudinal study of more than 15, uh, more than 3,200 interviews with leaders. And I did some really forensic, really cool AI kind of analytical work on that data to see if we could find patterns that would indicate to us what factors would influence which. And and that's exactly what we found. We found that, in fact, you actually can predict. We found four conditions that would tell you whether or not people would tell the truth, behave fairly, and serve a greater good. Um, Our definition of honesty is more than just not lying. Our definition of honesty is truth, justice, and purpose, meaning you have to say the right thing, do the right thing, and say and do the right thing for the right reason. Mm-hmm. It's no longer enough not to lie anymore. People, If you want to be labeled as honest and trustworthy, that's the yardstick people are going to hold up to you. Because our experience of honesty has gone into such a free fall that our, our expectations have just gone that much higher. So we found that there are, you know, hiding in plain sight right in front of us in our organizations are factors that will determine... Now- whether or not people will behave in ways you would want or behave in ways that put you in headlines you don't want to be in. That's fantastic. Well, you know, I, I recently just did a program for uh, students at uh, Davidson University here in North Carolina. And I started out my whole program talking about a Carmen Ghia. Do you know what a Carmen Ghia is, Ron? No. <laughs> It is a little Volkswagen they don't make anymore, but it was like the first car I ever drove. And uh, I had this like love affair with Volkswagens and the idea of this little Carmen Ghia and I was going to get one someday and refurbish it and everything. And then Volkswagen had that big um, problem where they put the emissions thing in the, the cars and messed with it and everybody got fired and everything. So I'm right there with you. And so my point with these young students was, um, you know, you could have a brand that you love so much that has this memory attached to it, and then people just steal it from you, you know? And so that that's what happened to me. Yeah, I guess we, we don't realize that our reputations are very tarnishable, both as individuals and corporations. You know, each of us can spend decades attracting and building and sustaining the trust of others, and in seconds, just drain it. Yeah, so we we recently bought a new car. I thought I was going to get a Volkswagen. I ended up getting a different German brand. And so I was just like, uh, you know, it just changed everything for me. So I think what what you're talking about here is is revolutionary and awesome. So what are those factors that you found? You said, I found factors. What are the factors? So the first one was, we called it clarity and identity. Be who you say you are. All of our companies um, tout promises. We have values and missions and vision statements and purpose statements. And it turns out that if the words of those statements that you make, which are implied promises, and the actions of your organization actually match, meaning people experience you in, in the way you describe yourself, you are three times more likely to have people tell the truth and behave fairly and serve greater good. But if you your actions and words don't match, in other words, if you say, this, these are our values, this is our purpose, and that's for the consumption from the wall only, but we do we do something else in real practice. What you've now done is institutionalized duplicity. You've now told the world, hey, around here we say one thing, but we do another. And when that happens, now you're three times more likely to have people be dishonest. So the second factor was justice and accountability, um, meaning that our, our experiences of talking about our contributions are laced with dignity. You, know, you never hear, I'm sure you've never had a client come to you, Nicole, and say, I'm so excited. Today's my performance review. But mostly when those days come, people dread them. 
And what's unfortunate is that the process that should be the most honoring and dignifying in our companies, talking about our contributions, have become the most demeaning and demoralizing, and people dread them. Mostly because they were built for a time when companies wanted to make sure that sameness equal fairness, meaning we treat people the same. Well, when our, when, it, when our workers' remits were things like how many claims you processed or how many T-shirts you printed or, you know, some repeatable work, it, that was fine. But today, people's remits are as unique as they are, right? Today, your remit is your idea, your analysis, your creativity, your, your hard thinking, your, your dissenting voice. So when you separate my contribution from me as the contributor to be objective, that's actually undignified. Because and unfair, because when you're trying to neutralize all of us into the same, when we're all so different, now you may be invisible. And so we've got to reintroduce accountability uh, systems that include dignity and fairness, meaning the level, the playing field is level for everybody to be successful, no matter who you are or what you look like. When those accountability systems are seen as fair, you are four times more likely to have people be honest. But when I feel the system is rigged, when I feel like um, I don't have the same chance of success as everybody else. When I feel like you, my boss talks about my work in a very undignifying um, and demeaning way or an in, un, uncaring way, now you're four times more likely to have me be, be dishonest because now I have to lie about my mistakes and embellish my accomplishments to stand out. The third factor was um, transparency and governance, me, meaning when I walk into a meeting and I believe that what's happening around the table is an honest exchange of ideas that the data being presented has not been spun or scrubbed anyway, that it's a fair representation of the truth, and that my voice is welcome, that I'm free to push back or challenge the prevailing conversation, that I'm free to offering alternative points of view that might be inconsistent with what's in the room. Now I'm three and a half times more likely to have people, be honest, because now I can trust what's happening in the room and the decisions that we're going to make, I can walk out next to company. But if I walk into that room and I think it's nothing but... Ex- that nothing but orchestrated theater, meaning this is a performance art, right? The data has been scrubbed. You have already made the decision. I'm just going to look like I'm being part of it. Um, the last thing I think you want to hear is my alternative idea. Now you're three and a half times more likely to have people be dishonest because now for me to get truthful information, I have to go underground. And the last one was cro- cross-functional partnerships. My relationship with people across the border, you know, sales to marketing supply chain to operations, R&D to marketing, or R&D to manufacturing. Those places where we typically have border wars, typically have uh, you know, unresolved conflicts, differences in measurement, differences in points of view, where basically you have your they. You know, here they come. What do they want? When those conflicts at those seams of the organization are left unresolved, when they are intractable, when they cause friction, when they cause performance to fall short, if they stay that way and that just becomes normalized, you are six times more likely to have people be dishonest because now it's no longer about the truth. It's about my truth versus your truth. And when you have dueling truths and you fragment it, you fragment the organization, right? You create, you allow silos and tribalism to become the norm. So so your they's become rivals of your we's. But if those things are stitched well, if, in fact, there is cohesion of those teams, if those people come together and realize that one plus one equals three, we serve a greater good together, that we each create part of the value that we couldn't do on our own, there's a way to resolve the healthy tensions and conflicts that naturally exist of those teams. Now you're six times more than that, people, be honest, because now we're part of a bigger story. 
we all now share the same outcome and goal. We may see the world differently. We may have different disciplines. We may not do the same kind of work, but we have enough respect for each other that we don't, it's not, it's not we, they, it's just we. The interesting thing about the, the statistical models, Nicole, is that they're cumulative, right? So if you're good at all four of those things, you are raising your odds by about a factor of 16. You're 16 times more likely to have people in your company behave honestly. But if you suck at all four of them, now you're 16 times more likely to have, uh, to, to be a Volkswagen story, to be a Wells Fargo story. Because all that risk is just growing in the, in the Petri dishes in your organization right there in front of you. And these are things we take, we, you know, how many of us think, oh yeah, sure, the values, we roll, we roll our eyes when we see that. Or of course, when you walk into a meeting and we're telling the truth. Or of course, no one likes that performance review, it's terrible. Or of course, there's a we and they, they're a pain in the neck. We just take these conditions for granted as if they're just normal parts of organizational life and don't really understand that they're inherently very risky conditions that don't have to be that way. Yeah. Uh, and so I've got this thing screaming in my head from my mentor is like uh, about being uh, honest uh, and the four factors that you've given us. It's like you got to have give it attention and be intentional. Right about clarity and your implied promises, about justice and accountability, about transparency and governance, and about your cross-functional partnerships. This is all going to take a great deal of attention <laughs> and intention, right? So, well, let's go back to the first one, this idea of clarity. So if a leader who's listening right now wants to start, is that where they start? They start with clarity? You could, I mean, you could start any, any one of the four that you think may have where there may be some problems lurking underneath them. But but with that okay. one, it's a real simple thing you can do. Into your next meeting, you know, take your mission statement or your purpose statement or your values, whatever whatever your company touts as its own promise, put it on the table and ask your team, hey, how are we doing against this? If people followed us around with a video camera all day long and just watched how we worked, could they use that video as a training program for these values? Would people see us embodying this? Would, people, would you see me embodying it? And if not, tell me. Or are there some ways we can do better? Ask for examples. T- tell me some place where you have felt like we have shined in living up to one of these values. Where's some place where you're not so proud? Where's some places where we could do better? Just bring the conversation into the room and actually talk about the words. And it can be a sobering conversation, but you will at least start moving toward really making sure that the actions and words of your team and of you as a leader, start to match. Yeah. So is this what you call closing the say-do gap? Yes. When I have this conversation? Yes. Okay. So so I love that language. When I was looking at your book, it said closing the say-do gap. Like I'm going to be like using that in the future, just so you know. But um, I, I think it's really important. Uh, I, I worked with a client recently, and um, we were talking about the core values. And uh, he's like, they're hanging on the wall. And I said, no, they're not. He goes, yes, they are. They're in the lobby. They're hanging on the wall. And I'm like, no, they're not. And so anyways, he came down from his office, went out there, and they were not hanging on the wall. They had painted and not rehung the words. Which is is just like a maintenance thing, right? A facilities thing or something, right? Like somebody put the 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 plexiglass on the side of a wall in a storeroom and it just didn't get put back up. It wasn't intentional, but um, it, it it's a well, great it was, story. I think to use your words, it was a lack of intentional. 
Right. Right. And so, you know, it's kind of like he was like, they're down. I'm like, well, here's what we need to do. First of all, let's re-examine them before we hang them back up. Right. You know, and let's let's close the say do gap. Thank you. I'm putting that in my well, pocket. OK. Isn't it isn't it very interesting anthropological data that nobody in the company raised the fact that they weren't hung up again? That you as the outsider had to be the one to point out that they were missing. Because did he even know how long they've been down? Like how long have they been? I mean, could have been a month, right? And it was it was, it was a lengthy period of time. I think it was more like three months. Well, but anyway. and, and a company <laughs> where I mean, what that tells him is that those values are not sacrosanct. Because in a company where the values are sacrosanct, the the janitor would have pointed out, "Hey, where are the values?" Somebody would have said something immediately if they had been if the, if those principles were treasured parts of their culture. But if it was just for external consumption, you know, is a plaque. Mm. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so um, you you also have kind of in this part, part one of your book, Honesty in Identity. You're talking about honesty in the identity of the company. You know, do we walk the walk and talk the talk and all that? But I'm curious, what, what does a leader need to do personally? Because I think a lot of leaders are disconnected. Like, it's like, you got to be the one living this first. Before you can expect all your so leader, what most leaders don't understand is that you, you your values have been decoded. If you ask your team what is important to you, they'll tell you. It may not be the values you believe you espouse or that you believe you embody, but you are telling people every day who you are. There are stories of your leadership being told around the dinner tables of your people every night. If you don't know what stories they're telling, that's a problem. But you may say, for example, I recently had to give feedback to a client. Uh, to tell him that your team is struggling to trust you. He got very defensive and said, I, I've never oh, yeah. always include them. I champion them. I, I, I stick up for their causes. How could they not trust me? And I said, well, apparently, I had learned in the feedback, apparently in meetings, when they go on too long, you don't like what they're saying, you become a little bit sarcastic, a little snide. Um, and if they go on too long, you cut them off. He said, well, everybody has a bad day. I said, well, apparently you have many of them. And... What you're telling people by those two behaviors is that you're not safe. Their voices are not safe among you because they're always dodging your snide remark or your, your off-the-cuff quip um, or being or so fearful they're going to say that they're babbling and they fear being cut off by you. So they can't trust that you are somebody they can bring their full selves to. That's not trustworthy. He had never connected the dots between those behaviors and making himself untrustworthy. Yeah. Worst of, all, worst of all, he was somebody that spent most of his time touting the importance of teamwork and talking about the, t- the team and we're all one and how much he valued the whole community. And, and yet his very behaviors were blind. The thing he said he was important to him didn't even see the contradiction. Yeah. And so that's what my daddy would call a hypocrite. Right. I mean, like we use this old fashioned language, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, you're saying one thing at once. It's institutionalized hypocrisy. You've you've said it's okay that I say one thing and do another. You may say you value compassion, but if somebody runs into your office and says, hey, somebody just backed into your car, you know, and the first thing you ask is how bad is the damage instead of is anybody hurt? It's real clear. Compassion is not a value. Right, right. Yeah. So, you know, I think this whole thing uh, boils down to like, you know, like the quality of your character, you know, and uh, I, I work with a tool. I don't know if you've ever heard of it before, but it's called the um, the True Tilt Profile. And it's a, it's about 48 
character traits or strengths of leaders. And so the ones that you're mentioning, you know, is honesty, uh, integrity, compassion, all of those are on the list. And so that's just popping up in my mind that, you know, leaders really need to take an inventory of those traits to see kind of like where they have a propensity to, as the title of that assessment says, tilt right? Which way they tend to tilt, right? So I I think that's really great. Okay. All right. So um, I love this part of the book where you say, get busy, be who you say you are. Um, So so how does a leader like get a to-do list on this? So like, you know, um, you bring it into the, 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 uh, the conference room, you start talking about it, but like, what does the leader do personally? I, I want to really lean on that just for another no, so minute. Right? My first question would be, have you articulated your values? Have you actually written down and articulated what people can expect from you? What, what you want them to hold you to account for? And, and, and if you have, do you know why do you value them? And, and, and do those values serve a purpose? So you can say, I value efficiency. I value quality. I value intellectual rigor. I value compassion and empathy. I mean, whatever it is, on what basis did you form those values versus, you know, these sound like the values I should have. What are the values you actually espouse? If your children followed you around with a video camera all day long, what values would they conclude your, your example is training them to do? And really closely examine, you know, and if you're, not, if you're not sure, go ask people. Find 20 people or so in your life who, be honest with you, and ask them, what do you think I stand for? Mm, I love that stand. I love that question. If you were to observe me in life uh, as you have, just my actions and behaviors and my decision-making and my choices, how I spend my time, what would you say was most important to me? I mean, many men say, oh, my family's most important thing. My family is top of my priority list. You know, I value my commitment to them. But then I look at your calendar and I, and I actually see how you're spending your time at night and on the weekends, and I'm not seeing a connection between that value and how you spend your time. Mm, that's beautiful okay you may in your heart and mind feel strongly about your family that's great you probably love them dearly and you probably hope they love you in return but to say you value them would require action intention and attention and i see neither that's exactly right. Yeah. So I'm having a little flash over to uh, Marshall Goldsmith. He, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Marshall Goldsmith, but he tells this little story about how he realized that he was not doing that. He wasn't. He was saying that he loved his family, but he, it wasn't showing up on his calendar. So he went to his daughter and he said, um, "Honey, I'm going to spend more time with you. How many hours a week would you like to spend with Daddy?" Because I think he's just a very practical, pragmatic guy. And uh, she said, "I don't know. Maybe." five hours a week. And so they began to spend five hours a week together doing all sorts of things she wanted to do. And uh, he had it on his calendar so that it could be seen. Uh, And then he said about after a month, she came to him and said, daddy, I think we should, we should change it to two hours a week. (laughs) But, but I just love that story because, you know, he, he, he did find the right amount, right. That pleased his daughter. And then also was right for him. But, um, but I think what you're saying is absolutely huge. And I love your puppy in the background, by the way, what is, what is his or her name back there? His name is Hamilton. Oh, like, did you name it like after the Broadway show? I did. 
Yeah. No way. Oh my gosh. We should hang out and do um, sing-alongs, Ron. I love Hamilton. <laughs> I love it. My daughter and I uh, turn on, we tell Alexa to play the whole soundtrack and we dance around the kitchen for hours. It's awesome stuff. All right. But, but I digress. All right. So now I want to talk about part two of the book, which is justice and accountability. And so you, you touched on it a little bit uh, and you said that performance reviews are dreaded, which I totally think is right. And then you said we got to have systems for accountability. Can you kind of talk about what you mean there other than like the performance review? What other systems of accountability are there? Our routine conversations with our progress reports, how, how we give them assignments, how we check in with them. The process by which we, we, we're, we're, well, not, not so much rewarded for our work, but how our work is acknowledged. You know, one of the questions I love to ask audiences when I speak, Nicole, is how many of you have ever received a compliment from your boss that you found insulting? And more than half their hands in the room go up. And when I ask them, what, what did you find offensive about the compliment? It's the same response. It wasn't sincere. They didn't mean it. Um, it sounded obligatory. They, um, it sounded like they were checking a box. They didn't actually know what I'd done. Oh, um, there's the honesty part. And so, you know, one of the things we have to, to, to insert dignity into the uh, conversation, you have to honor the work of people. One of the simplest ways I, I tell leaders all the time, if you want to ex- truly express your gratitude and acknowledgement for somebody's work, ask for the story. When they come to you and they hand in a project or they've met a deadline or they're telling you they've, they've given you the whatever it was you asked for, step back and say, you know, I have, I'm sure I have no idea what it took for you to actually do that. I'm sure it was harder than it looked. Tell me the story. What was it like? And make them tell you the story of their accomplishment. Watch how they light up. Watch where they struggled. Watch where they had a breakthrough. Watch where they learned something. First of all, they'll give you a goldmine of data about how to motivate them. And secondly, by listening to the story, you're telling them it's a, your hard work is important enough for me to learn about. It's, you know, rather than saying, hey, thanks, great job. You know, take the time to hear the story of the great job. Uh, secondly, be honest about yourself and ask yourself, where is there undue privilege around here? You know, is the playing field really equal? If you're in a tech company, I'll bet you your engineers are privileged. If you're in a branded company, I'll bet your marketers are privileged. If you're in a high growth company, I'm sure your salespeople are privileged. You know, and it's not that you have to treat all work equally because all work is not equal. But if those privileges that those people enjoy have an invoice for somebody else that has to pay something for those privileges and they feel disadvantaged by those privileges, that's a problem. That's an unlevel playing field. That's a lack of justice. Where is there a lack of procedural fairness? You know, how do you allocate your resources? How do you do your budget work? Who, whose voices get heard in your meetings and whose don't? If you want to find injustice uh, and missing dignity in your organization, you can look for them. And But most people already assume you see it and don't care. So mm-hmm. uh, that is absolutely Most people assume that you see it and you don't care. You're not doing anything about it. Right. Because how could you not see it? Right. It's so obvious. And maybe you don't see it, which means you should be even all the more on the lookout to find it. And you should make sure people know you want to hear about it when they see it. Um, I tell my clients frequently, you know, it's a very simple litmus test. But if you don't have somebody coming into your office once or twice a week regularly saying something that makes you uncomfortable to hear, you can be very confident your leadership sucks. (laughs) Wait, can you hear that again? Because I think it's genius. Everybody listen up. If you don't have somebody coming into your office once or twice a week saying something to you that makes you uncomfortable to hear, your leadership sucks. And, and if you've assumed that it's because there isn't anything difficult to say, now you're stupid. 
because there are problems that you're out of position. There are challenges. There are difficult things happening. And they're telling somebody. They're certainly telling each other. They're telling their families and at a dinner. But if they're not telling you, you need to be curious about why. Because you, you're probably one of the people with a disproportionate level of influence to be able to actually fix the problem. And so if they're not telling you, there's a reason. It's not random. There's a reason they're not telling you. You should wonder why. Yeah. Well, okay. So I got another thing screaming in my head, Ron. Uh, so I talk a lot to my clients, um, like as a, as a framework to get started, I, I say, you know, let's talk about what makes a leader tick. You know, you've, you've got these different things working for you. You've got your brain, you know, you've got your social energy, you've got, you know, all these different things, your emotional intelligence, et cetera. But there's one thing working against you. And, and we have this conversation about ego. And I think that the leader who gets that person that walks in their office and makes them uncomfortable, you know, that uncomfortable is that the ego is triggered. And now we're in a fear state, you know, and, and when you're in fear, we all know from our brain science that back here, your amygdala gets hijacked and you can't get to your free prefrontal cortex to think about whatever it is this person is telling you and be a problem solver or get a strategy in place. Um, so when you think about you know, being honest and that kind of thing. I think this whole subject matter triggers the ego. What do you suggest for leaders to to learn to take feedback? Because I will tell you, they don't teach you this in business school. You can have an MBA and one of the classes is not how to receive feedback. It should be, <laughs> it's not. Well, and I, I had, go ahead. I think you need to ask yourself about, you know, what data are you are you relying on? If not data that's feedback, how are you drawing conclusions? You're using some data set, is it your assumption base? Is it your observations? What's the source of, of input for your decisions about how you choose behaviors or how you lead or how you influence? Um, and if it's not a regular source of feedback, you're, it's like flying a plane without radar. Mm. Uh, here, here's a, you know, the, the simple but crass metaphor that I use a lot for leaders. You know, if you imagine you're at a, a very nice dinner party with your significant other and you just had to leave a little bit early and you get in the car and your significant other turns to you and he or she says, honey, you have a big thing hanging off the end of your nose. It's been there all night. Get it off. Your question would be, why didn't you tell me? You tell me now. <laughs> every, every leader has things hanging off your behavior you can't see. Everybody else is seeing them. You should want to get in on the conversation. Because if you, because if you don't know, how can you fix it, right? Um, now, people may come to you with clumsy, awkward, not particularly well-articulated ways of telling you that. But that's okay. You don't have to, you know, it doesn't have to be a beautiful love letter to tell you how great you are. I know, oh, by the way, you suck at this. Make sure people know you value their dissenting ideas. Make sure people know you value, you know, cr crazy input. I have one client. She's great. She simply says, um, after she uh, expresses an idea or offers a point of view, she says, she'll, say, she'll tell them, okay, so how am I smoking crack? <laughs> and, am I high or not? <laughs> and, and she and people have come to believe she actually really does want the pushback, the dissent. You know, conflict is the raw material of innovation. You need dis differences. You need sparks to get your best ideas, your highest quality decisions, and your greatest level of ownership. If that, if people are just not in their head telling you what you want to hear in your meetings or in your conversations, you should be concerned. It means you haven't created the psychological safety uh, needed for people to believe their voice matters. Uh, and that it matters to you. And maybe yeah. it doesn't. And maybe, and, and if you've decided I don't care what they think, that's okay. You're allowed to do that. You have, there's a cost for that. You, know, you have to be, when, when there's a crisis, you'll pay the cost. 
because they'll all sit around and look at you and go, okay, what, what, what do you want to do here? Because you will have trained them to think that you're the answer ATM and you have all the answers. And so they'll just, they will look to you and you, and you're going home frustrated and venting to your spouse. Going, they don't take any ownership. They don't get involved. They don't, well, you, that's, what you, that's how you train them. That's right. So you get that culture of disengagement that like almost every executive is worried about and doing surveys and then getting the surveys back. And you got to believe what the data says. I I love what you said. Uh, What data are you relying on if not feedback? Oh my gosh, y'all write that down. Ask yourself that question daily. Um, Well, you know, Ron, I had a, I have this wonderful mentor and um, she told me that um, I was not good at taking feedback. I've been with her a long time. And she said, you want to provide an excuse, Nicole. You want to give your rational, your rational ideas around whatever it is you're doing. And she said, here, I'm going to teach you how to receive feedback. And I said, okay. And she said, you just say, thank you. You, you don't have to decide if you agree with it or you don't agree with it right away. You right. just have to say thank you. Um, and I know that the Center for Creative Leadership has touted the idea that feedback is a gift for years and years and years. And it, it really, truly is. And if you'll just say thank you, then you can go think about it for a minute and then come back and address the person that gave it to you in a way where you are speaking from here, your prefrontal cortex and not back here, your amygdala. So <laughs> I think that's really good. You, Lita, so to add to that, thank you. Um, I know that was probably not easy for you to do, so I really appreciate the courage it took for you to oh, tell me. I appreciate that. And if it was something that you did that was troubling, you should add, oh, and I'm so sorry. That was not my intent. Don't tell them what your intent was. That's not important. That's, that's just that's the point. But you say, I'm so, so sorry. That's not, that's not my intention. Thanks for bringing my attention to it. Yeah, the yeah. Art, the, art the, the art of the honest apology can buy you so much credibility if you mean it. The art of the honest apology. All right. Can you talk about that for a minute? The art of the honest apology? Well, I, I love it. Listen, we all mess up, right? Um, and, and like yeah. I said before, our egos get in the way of us actually taking responsibility for what we mess up. Certainly, you shouldn't have to wait until somebody tells you, but when you realize I messed up, I, I said something I shouldn't have said, or I, I hurt somebody's feelings. But, you know, if you make a comment in a meeting and you watch people shut down, or you realize, you know, then just go and say, hey, you know what? I, that wasn't my best self, and I'm sorry. And ask forgiveness. Your humility and your humanity are two of your greatest leadership assets. People know you're not perfect. What they don't know is whether or not you know it. Ah. And if you can let them know before about your imperfections before they find them, let them know that you want to take responsibility for them before they have to tell you, it, you, you buy so much credibility. Your brilliance and your strengths are not your greatest source of credibility. It's your humanity that makes people want to connect to you and follow you. That's right. That's exactly right. Okay. So that's a beautiful segue for part three of your book, which is about transparency. So I, I think you're talking about two things there. Maybe I could be transparent about my weaknesses, my challenges, my quirks, and then so uh, transparency in the governance of the organization. Like one thing that I'm a huge fan of is like, you know, open, open books. Yeah. Like, you want me to contribute to the profit, then you got to show me how we're doing. Otherwise, it looks like we're making a boatload of cash around here. <laughs> right? So and, and it's, uh, and a lot of it seems to be going in your pocket. Yeah, yeah. It's all those cruises I go on as the leader, right? Or he, he's not here. He must be, you know, at the spa. I don't know. So will you talk a little bit about transparency and governance? Um, well, I think, I, like I, you know, I mentioned earlier, Nicole, we all walk into meetings and wonder, you know, is this just a, who's performing here, right? You know, think about the next time uh, if you're a leader and you're at your QBR 
and people are getting up in front of the room talking about what happened in the last quarter and forecasting what's going to happen in the next quarter. And think about the person who's up there. And when you're in your head thinking, this is such a load of crap. You know, the, 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 we've heard the same forecast for four quarters now. He, he hasn't met it yet. And there's always this very interesting dance and storytelling about why the last quarter went off, off the rails. Everybody in the room is thinking that, but um, they're nodding their heads. Mm, that's interesting. But no one is saying anything. Right. You should wonder about that. Why is it okay for the people in the front of the room sharing the story of their work to spin it? Everybody's looking at the same before. Everybody knows what happened. It's here. Why, why aren't you talking about it? And if that level of transparency is not valued in your, in your team or in your department, that energy is going somewhere, right? So the, the amount of work it takes to do the spin, to do the couching, to do the justification, to offer the defense, to, you know, sort of do that, do the, the, the quick sleight of hand, head fake away from the real truth. Um, is all capacity that can be going toward actually improving performance. So you you know you you have a finite amount of capacity. If you're okay with it being some of it being deployed toward that kind of nonsense, then you know then don't wonder why it is people aren't getting their work done or why it is when there's a pinch people aren't want to dig deep and, and do more. Yeah, yeah, and you know at the end of the day, I think people want to be part of something that does have integrity that is full of honesty. It's because like. We know that environment makes us better because we're all prone to falling off the off the rails, as you said earlier, you know. And so it's like, gosh, I work for such a good company. And it's not like we don't understand that that makes me better. When I when I come here every day, I get better. <laughs> this is a great place to work, not because they have uh, ping pong tables or whatever, but because I'm part of a group of great huge amount of hardworking integrity character people and I'm part of it. Wow. Hot, hot thing. That's great for me. So uh, I think that's, I think that's fantastic. All right. Well, group uh, part four of your book is, you know, again, talking about the cross-functional partnerships. And I love the language that you use. You're, you're quite a wordsmith. Obviously he's written nine books. Hello, everybody. So uh, you said the dueling truths, because that, that is just so, and I also like it because it's got a whole Hamilton thing to it. Don't miss that, everybody. Dueling truths. <laughs> so, so we've got these two truths: accounting thinks it's going this way, marketing thinks it's going that way, sales thinks it's going that way. Talk about dueling truths and how can we get better at getting these silos broken down and, and stitching organizational seams. Everybody, write that down. Stitching organizational seams. That is a beautiful phrase. You know, Nicole, I think, I mean, the last couple of years, I think, showed us, and I think certainly social media has amplified this, that I think we have confused speaking your truth with speaking the truth. And mm. I think we have taught people that if you just don the posture of a big, loud middle finger and rant and rave, um, <laughs> that you get, to, you, get, you get to be right. Um, and we've taken that polarization into our workplaces with us. And we don't have productive ways of actually, you know, finding a shared truth. We have echo chambers. We like our tribes. We like people who think like us, and we don't like people who don't. Um, whether whether we actually know whether they do or not, we've assumed they don't, and we've uh, we've othered them. We've made them other, and now you're the enemy. I think we we live in our echo chambers that just reinforce what we believe. And if you don't learn to go and value and listen to the points of view that don't match yours, you're never going to learn. Right? We're so afraid that if we listen to a point of view different than ours, it means we're condoning it or that we agree with it, or compromising our values. That's all crap, right? 
if you're listening to people who only think like you, 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 you'll never grow as a leader. You'll never be able to be at, at the enterprise level because all the enterprises is, is a bunch of, is a sea of diff, differing points of view. That's what makes it an enterprise. And so, you know, think about who your they is. Who is the cross-functional partner in another group that when they come, you know, you hear their name, you see them in their your caller ID, you see an email from them, and, or they're coming for help, but you kind of go, oh, here they come. Ask yourself, what, what conclusions have you drawn about them? What assumptions or labels have you given them that you have never tested, but you just assume are true? Or what pieces of data have you taken uh, from choices they've made or irritants they've, you know, irritated you with and, and concocted them into? Like, how, how, have, you, how have you vilified them? What, what if 70% of what you concluded isn't true? Have the courage to pick up the phone, walk down the hall, go to that person and say, look, I know we haven't been the best of colleagues. And value is being eroded from our company because we, you know, people look at us as the Hatfields and McCoys. How can I be better? What can I do to be a better colleague to you? What is it I don't know about your world that I should know? How have I been a problem for you? I, we do this, we do seam stitching interventions all the time. We bring those organizations together and we make them talk about the, the value they co-create and the conflicts they haven't resolved and how they want to work together. It's, it's called a seam stitching, a, a seam startup. And what we inevitably find, Nicole, is as they have these conversations, they learn so much about each other that they, they just never assume to be true. And you hear things like, oh my God, that's why, I'm a, that's why you hate me. Or I had no idea I was such a pain in the ass to you that way. <laughs> and you, you just realize all of your assumptions were concocted so poorly. And so, you know, and by the way, you're somebody's they too. Whose they are you? Who rolls their eyes when you walk down the hall? Who, who's, whose butt are you a pain, pain to? Because you're making somebody's life miserable just as, as they're making yours miserable. If you don't do the work to cross the bridge and stitch the seam, you're leaving all kinds of value and money on the table and you're making the place miserable. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I got a couple of things from that. First of all, um, this thing of vilifying people, I see it all the time. I am with you 100%. And the other like kind of um, sentiment out there is like uh, Ron and Nicole can't change. You know, like th- that's the way they are. You they're know? always been that it, way. They're always going to be that way. Right, right, right. And, um, and I'm like, and on our watch as coaches, we have to believe people can change or we're out of business, right? And so I, I tell people that all the time. I said, no, you've, you've got to have and this word, everybody, this word is all the way throughout this book. I have to have hope. Yep. I have to have hope in people. I mean, like all I got is people in this whole world is people to help me. And so I think that that is so huge. Like this stuff almost makes me cry, Ron, because it's like, no, we can help Nicole get better. We can help Ron get better. But somebody has to care enough to help her or help him. Tell the truth. Yep. Right. Or just tolerate or or we're just going to tolerate this nonsense and we will never get out of the mess we're in. And it's not, it's not fair to them. It's not fair. It's cruel to let somebody struggle and not. Right. Right. It's, it's just unkind. Ah, awesome stuff. Okay. So uh, the last thing I got out of that was I, I had a flashback. This is two days in a row. I've had this come up. So I'm, I'm going to go study this again. I'm sure you've studied this in your past, but the, you know, the ladder of inference 
that is Chris Argus's work, uh, where he talks about how you're in an environment and you give something meaning, right? Or, or you uh, you pick, pick things out you like to pick out of the conversation, then you give it meaning, and then you make assumptions, and then you jump to conclusions. And I think I'm missing a couple of ladder steps here. But then eventually you take action based on those little things you picked out and gave meaning and whatever. And that's when you're like, oh, when you said earlier, that's why you think I'm a pain in the ass. <laughs> it's because somebody just ran up the ladder yeah. uh, on you. Uh, so I, I love that. So I'm going to I'm going to do a little blog or something on the ladder of inference. I think people need to see, see that laid out. Is that, is that a good model you think? Oh, it's a great model. I mean, I think if you, and if you just said, I mean, where that work has come through Peter Senge's work since then and all the work on cognitive biases, right. You know, I think right. all, all of that is are, are just our own biases screaming to make, make sense of the world. I mean, our brains are, our brains There's a lot of neuroscience in the book and the research, because I wanted to understand how, how, how hardwired for honesty are we? Um, and the good news is that we are. Our brains are actually naturally hardwired for honesty, but unfortunately, our brains don't come don't come with the same button our cell phones do that says restore factory settings. You know, <laughs> so when we get into environments that don't value integrity, if we don't get out, we succumb. You know, and so the and we did that. You know, there's a slippery slope for a reason. If we don't back away from the slope, we slip. And you know, we unfortunately, as Dan Ariely says, you know, in your neighborhood, we don't have slippery ascents; we just have slippery slopes. Uh, so. Mm-hmm. You know, we we have got to be the ones that decide, you know, am I being the best version of myself? Am I, am I being who I want to be? Am I showing up uh, in an environment that I'm proud to be part of? And am I doing that with people that I value and, and, and that I respect and who respect me? And and if you're not, don't just settle for that, right? I mean, don't just settle for, you'd want somebody to tell you if you were not being all of who you're supposed to be. So you know, why would you not conclude that somebody else is, can be better if they're, if they're, if they're performing in ways that are less than ideal or they're struggling? Um, you have no idea why, but to just write them off as though, you know, they're helpless. That's just your own excuse. You know, w- w- the honest, the honest statement is I don't want to do the work to bring it to the attention. Cause you know what? Here's the, the real truth. If they change it requires change on your part, Right. It's change back syndrome, right? If if people who you love to complain about and bitch about and whose behavior troubles you gives you something to sort of crusade about, if suddenly they become more trustworthy, you have to trust them. If they become more empowering, you have to become more empowered. If they become more inclusive, you have to show up and be included. Well, we don't bargain for that part. I like being on the sidelines and throwing darts. That's more fun. It's more safe. So you have to ask yourself if the real reason you're not raising it and you're telling yourself is, well, they can't change, you're, just, you're, you're lying to yourself. That's just not true. The real truth is I just don't care to or I don't want to. You're, you're allowed not to want to. That's okay. You have to be willing to bear the consequences of what comes with that, including their behavior you don't like. That's right. And, uh, you know, another thing people will say to me, Ron, is they'll make like a, a little sassy comment, like, well, their mama must have not raised them right or something. And to which I always reply, well, that might actually be true. Yep. And so if you if you have not had somebody speak into your life, like my mentor that I mentioned earlier that said, you're not very good at taking feedback. What? <laughs> But I mean, I think my father, when I think about my life, he wasn't very good at taking feedback. And so I learned how to not take feedback well. You know what I mean? So it's like uh, you think about it and it's like uh, when somebody can tell you these things and you can change, 
um, it, it's such a testimony to everybody else too. When like somebody in the company does a turnaround, I mean, it's just, I mean, then they think, oh, well, maybe I can change too. But leaders have to understand that you do have to kind of um, raise people up. Now, I don't mean like their children. I mean, like raise them to higher ground, bring the whole team to higher ground. That's what the whole leadership thing is about. <laughs> so we, we do job. have to raise people. Yeah. All right. Well, if you were to give, well, first of all, everybody go get this book to be honest okay uh you have to go get the book it's it's on where's the book at it's on amazon it's on your website it's everywhere right uh, barnes and noble yeah it's everywhere target, target walmart you can't you can't not find it is that that's what we're saying if you google to be honest by ron, ron if you want and if you want to know more about the book um you can come to to be honest.net and you can we have a whole tv series so if you if you want to meet all the incredible heroes that I met during the book, the book is the book is a book about of heroes. It's not about the villains anymore. I, I wanted to know who can we emulate, who do we want to be like. So this is a book of heroes. We did a TV series called Moments of Truth, and we actually when I did the interviews for the book, we videoed them, and we turned it into a whole TV series. And so you can find those episodes on to be honest.net. You can find more information about the there's a webinar on there you can take about the book's research, and we have a free assessment called How Honest Is My Team. So you can download that at tobehonest.assessment.net uh, slash assessment, and you can find out, am I getting the whole truth from my team? Fantastic. Oh, my God. All right. So hello, everybody out there on the Vibrant Leadership Podcast. You just won the lottery. You got a whole thing to do now. All right. That's fantastic. Okay. So here's the last question. Leave us with this, Ron. If there's one special listener out there and you're like, here's my one final piece of advice. Do this next first. What would you say? Think about the last two weeks of your life and think about the moments that you were dishonest. You know, I mean, University of Massachusetts says we all lie on average twice a day. But broaden the definition of honesty and think about when you were not your best self. You know, you, were, you weren't fair to somebody. You weren't kind to somebody. You, you fudged the truth. You embellished an accomplishment. You bragged. You um, were selfish. You were short with your kids. You were mean to your spouse. Just actually sit down and really recall and just a six or eight day period um, and, and, and write down all the moments. And I guarantee you, you'll find a pattern because the moments that bring us to our dishonesty are not random. We all have moments and places in our life that we use those behaviors to protect ourselves, to just to hide a wound, to repeat a narrative in our head that's telling us a story about how to interpret the world. Your, your moments of dishonesty are not random. If you want to become more honest, you have to go back to the origins of your dishonesty. And so if you really want to raise your own game and, and really raise the profile of your trustworthiness, where people actually see you as somebody they want to follow and trust, you have to go find the places in your life that are patternistically calling you to behavior that's, that's less than you, that's beneath what you say you value, and be honest about what those are and where they came from. Mm, I love that piece of advice. Well, thank you so much for being on the Vibrant Leadership Podcast. I've had an absolute ball. I have pages of notes and um, I'm going to go to tobehonest.net and uh, watch the video series, find out more about the book, buy the book, and then take the assessment and get this whole thing in a strategy, get it on the calendar. It won't do anything if you don't get it on the calendar. Work with your team. Uh, Ron, we appreciate you so much. Um, and of course, you can reach out to Ron. How's the best way to uh, get a hold uh, of so you? You can find us at our, our firm website is navalent.com, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com. Um, we got a treasure trove of stuff there. You've got free ebooks for you. You have a bunch of videos you can watch there, some great white papers and articles. So come hang out with us there and stay in touch. Follow me on LinkedIn too. 
Okay, fantastic. I'm gonna, I've already linked in with you, but the rest of you get busy. Thank you so much. A pleasure, Nicole. Ready to up your leadership game? Bring Nicole Greer to speak to your leadership team, conference, or organization to help them with her unique SHINE method to increase clarity, accountability, energy, and results. Email speaking at vibrantcoaching.com. And be sure to check out Nicole's TEDx talk at vibrantcoaching.com slash TED talk. 